Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, football editor at Chronicle Live, and welcome to 1952. We're going to cover 10 years of Newcastle United history today in a single episode. So naturally, there's a trophy win, a relegation, and a few more oddities and controversies and drama thrown in for good measure. With us as ever to describe events is Newcastle United's official historian, Paul Joannou. And today we have another special guest, Alan Candlish, is an East End magpie, a lifelong supporter of Newcastle United and a keen researcher of its history at all levels, from junior to senior. He is the author of How Are the Lads? The Definitive History of Tyneweir Football Derbies. And he's worked closely with Paul on the essential read, Pioneers of the North, a historical account that details how football developed in the north of England in the latter part of the 19th century. Alan, first of all, welcome to the show and thanks very much for, for joining us. I was wondering if you could kick us off by giving us a little bit of a background on yourself as someone who's written books on Northeast football and you're a lifelong fan of the club and a, a student of its history as well, aren't you? Yes, that's right, yeah. Um, as you say, I'm from the east end of Newcastle, baker born and bred, and I've always supported the tune from his sins. Um, hmm. All of my friends from my school days did likewise. TV hadn't enticed youngsters onto other teams in those days. So everyone supported the local team, in this case, Newcastle United. I first really became interested in the history of the club back in 1976. I remember the year because of the American Bicentennial. I was with my dad in a working men's club in Baker, where he and his mates start arguing about who scored Newcastle's first goal after the war. Some said Jackie Milburn, others Albert Stubbins, another Charlie Wayman. I kept out of the argument before my time, but eventually chipped in by saying I could find out easily enough Newcastle Central Library has an absolutely wonderful newspaper archive, as Paul no doubt, no doubt knows. So I went there and had looked up the local newspapers from 1946 and found out. It was Jackie Milburn. Although, interestingly, Stubbins and Wayman both scored in that match, Albert getting a hat-trick. But so captivated by reading the, the contemporary reports of the time, I got hooked. And I, I looked for the whole of the 1946-47 season, listing all the lineups, listing the, the results and details. Then I went back to 1893-94 when Newcastle joined the league. Then went back further still to 1882 to East End's days. And eventually back to 1881 for Stanley FC, the, the very first club. And I went right back to Rangers on Tyneside in 1876. I was hooked. Simple as that. Amazing. Well, thanks for, for joining us. And we're going to look forward to asking you some questions about this particular era we're covering today. Paul, as I said in the intro, lots to cover. We're starting in 1952 where Newcastle are the FA Cup champions, but they've just returned from a gruelling post-season trip to South Africa, haven't they? That's right. Um, that tour to South Africa took a lot out of United's players, and they finished in a lowly 16th position uh, in 52-53. Yet that season saw a remarkable FA Cup match at St James's Park with uh, Swansea. There was two games with 60,000 at each in attendance, the first contest uh, was actually abandoned after only eight minutes of play due to uh, fog. It descended on St James's Park and, and uh, no one could hardly see the ball. Uh, so a couple of days later, uh, the, just about everybody returned and uh, saw uh, another FA Cup tie. It was uh, quite an amazing uh, uh, tie. Did that uh, Swansea abandonment, Paul, did that prompt the introduction of floodlights at St James's Park or was this change going to happen anyway? Uh, I don't think it did prompt uh, the introduction, not as far as I've uh, managed to find out. Um, Floodlit football was just starting to come into the game in this country and uh, a lighting system of sorts was installed at St James's Park 
and that was a series of lights mounted on uh, the old telegraph poles along the Lisa's Terrace side of the ground and uh, on the roof of the old West Stand. By all accounts, the illumination was very poor, uh, but it was a start of floodlit football under the lights. Uh, the first game saw Glasgow Celtic come down to St James's Park um, in 1952-53. Uh, and by the end of the decade, those inferior telegraph poles had been replaced uh, with what was a state-of-the-art system for then. Um, four giant pylons dominated uh, the skyline of Tyneside for the next three decades. And, you know, at that time, by, by the time those pylons had arrived, uh, a whole series of continental visitors had uh, uh, made the trip to St James's Park to play under the lights. Uh, we had actually already faced the likes of Real Madrid at St James's Park, but that was way back in 1925, uh, before they became uh, the great side they are now. But after that Celtic game, uh, which incidentally, you know, 42,000 turned up to watch that uh, sort of novel uh, floodlit game, uh, several sides from around Europe came along, including by 1960 Barcelona, uh, and a terrific game was played out at St James's Park. Uh, we lost 4-3. But we did win one or two games, and, and United fans also saw uh, a, a few Brazilians at St James's Park in the shape of a team called Bella Vista. Now, Newcastle won 12 1, so there mustn't have been very, very good. And I think, Alan, uh, you were at that game, weren't you? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, of course, you see, in 1958, um, the world had been captivated by the samba football of Brazil in Sweden, where the World Cup took place for the likes of Pele, Vava, Didi, and showed that football was indeed the beautiful game. So Bella Vista cashed in on this and they came to Europe, but they weren't a top-ranked team by any means. And they were undoubtedly skillful, they were dead slow, they were very slow, and they were taken apart by Newcastle. It was 4-1 at half-time. It was then that Newcastle brought in a couple of subs, one of them was Bobby Mitchell, who was wallowing in the reserves at the time. Um, he had a field day, Newcastle racked up a cricket score, as Paul said, winning 12-1, with five goals apiece for Len White and Arthur Bottom. Four of Arthur's goals it came a seven-minute spell in the second half. To give Bella Vista some credit, they never resorted to dirty tactics and even lined up the, at the end of the game to applaud the crowd. And this is sportingly reciprocated by Newcastle supporters. Unfortunately, the Brazilians were castigated by the, the authorities back home in Rio for showing Brazilian football up. They were certainly out of their depth in England, but they were never hammered as badly as, as on the tour again. But they did lose 4 at Middlesbrough and by a similar score by Sheffield United. On time side, Obi wonders why is Bobby Mitchell in the reserves? Mm. Yeah, interesting. And, and uh, maybe the, maybe the northeast weather or food didn't agree with them if they're losing heavily at St James's Park <laughs> and at Ayrson Park. Alan, the um, when the, the floodlight uh, the floodlights were installed at St James's Park, this was around the era that you'd started going to the games. We, we yeah, were the I, first I was at the very first ever ever for the game. Um, yeah. in, in fact, um, my dad took me along. I was only nine years old at the time, fair enough. It's the first game that I remember fairly clearly. I'd been to matches before that, and although, as Paul said, correctly says, that the, the, the floodlights were very primitive, archaic by modern standards, mm -hmm. but to the fans at the time, it was all bright. It looked wonderful, absolutely gorgeous. My dad had taken me to a few reserve games before that, but um, I can't remember them in any detail whatsoever, but I did the, 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 the Sunday game. Um, what got me, apart from the fact it was in floodlight, is the first time I'd ever seen a team playing green and white hoops. 
come and see a team playing hoops before. I thought, this is weird. Is this how Scottish teams play? That's that's what I thought at the time. <laughs> Long time ago, though. Was it a talking point among the fans as you were heading up to the stadium? Oh, it's going to be floodlit tonight. This is the first was, time. Man, nobody's talking to me then. <laughs> <They're dragging laughs> me up, up, up the steps. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I think most fans thought the floodlights this is a bit of, as Paul said, they were rubbish, really. But to yeah. us at the time, there was something special, really special, you know. You see, like at night time, it's better in the dark anyway, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Bill Swan, who was on the previous episode, he, he was at the game and he told me uh, that apparently they switched the lights off at half time and, and the whole stadium just descended <laughs> into total darkness. So it was it must have been absolutely weird, I've got to say. Do, do, um, do, you, know, do, you, know, do you know that for that game, I think, I'm right in saying this, that the, the receipts from that game paid for the entire electrical installation and the electricity bill for that night came to two pounds. <laughs> so the, do you think they were trying to save money at half time and buy something at all? Two pounds. Great, great, yeah. info, great intel. That's good, good one. Paul, on, on to 1954-55 then, there was a change in the dugout, wasn't there, towards the end of, of 1954 that was significant? Yeah, United had gone through a few, uh, a good few months without a manager uh, after George Martin left. And uh, apart from the fact that Stan Seymour stepped in and, and made a very good job of it, uh, but they appointed a new uh, manager in charge as the season developed uh, with a chap called Dougie Livingston arriving just before Christmas. Uh, United were very much a mid-table side that slipped up uh, in the last couple of seasons, uh, but could still display some of the old cup magic. Mm. And, and Dougie Livingston arrived and, and took us into 1955, then the famous year in, in Newcastle United history. Can you talk us through the, the run to their last ever successful FA Cup win? Yeah, of course. Uh, United had a side which was pretty inconsistent that season. Uh, Vic Keeble had taken over the number nine shirt and Jackie Milburn moved across the forward line at either inside forward or, or on the wing. Uh, Keeble was a big success in a very different style, of course. He was a good target man and excellent in the air. Uh, another player arrived for a big fee, Jimmy Schooler. He, he cost United 22000 250 from Portsmouth, where he'd won a couple of championships, and uh, he was appointed skipper of the side. Uh, he was an uncompromising halfback or midfielder. I would class him in a similar style to, to Roy Keane of, of, modern, of the modern era. Mm. Um, he could be a bit uh, nasty on the field, but he was a very good player. Uh, he, England international Ivor Broadus also arrived. He was a, a really a quality schemer, but he fell out of favour very quickly at St James's Park. Um, but United went on a cup run and they, they reached the semi-final and, and they nearly lost indeed to third division north side York City in that semi-final. Uh, they needed a replay at Roker Park to reach Wembley for the third time in only five years. Mm. And uh, Alan, you pointed out before we started recording that, that actually Newcastle needed a replay in all of their semis. In the, yeah, in the they successful did. Successful 50s. Of the 50s, yeah. All, yeah. Three, all three. They won the cup three times in the 50s. Everyone knows, but they had to get the replay in the semi final to get to every one of them. And as Paul mm. just said, one of them was against the third division north side. <laughs> yeah. What we've done, something Sutter's never, Sutter's never done. We've won an FA Cup semi final at Roker Park. They've never done. <laughs> Great. Good one. Yeah, that's, I'm going to keep that one up my sleeve. That's a good, a good one. Now, regular listeners know that I often try and read out newspaper extracts on the show from a few of the eras that we, that we cover, especially around 
Newcastle FA Cup final appearances. And on the eve of the, the 55 final, the Daily Mirror published a Meet the Teams feature. And there's, I'm not going to read all of that out because it's quite large, but there's a little box out that caught my attention that I just want to quickly read to you. It reads, um, it's titled, He Hopes the Queen Will Understand. And there's a couple of lines of text underneath and it says, Newcastle Chairman Stan Seymour, who will sit between the Queen and Princess Margaret and help them follow the game, said last night, this will be the greatest moment of my life. But Stan's big moment brings only one little worry. I only hope they can understand my Geordie accent, he added. Now, I don't know if you're aware of that, but to be a f- privy to that conversation during the game of, of Stan Seymour calling the game to the, the Queen and Princess Margaret would have been uh, quite something. That wasn't in the crown. I saw the crown. It wasn't in the crown. <laughs> I just thought that was a, a good one and a nice bit of imagery there. And did of course, you really, not... can I interrupt a second, Matt? Did, yeah. did you realise that Paul knew this? That uh, Newcastle won the cup three times in the fifties, but a different person presented them with the cup every time. All right. Yes. Well, we mentioned Winston, Ch- Winston Churchill and the Queen. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. There you go. Good. Coming at us from all angles with this trivia today. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Na- naturally. Of course, being Newcastle United, things didn't go smoothly and there was even controversy ahead of the final itself, wasn't there, Paul? Uh, There certainly was. Um, There was a a team selection rumpus uh, which illustrated uh, that the club had little faith in Livingston as a manager and also that that, uh, football managers back then didn't have much power at all. Uh, Indeed, Livingston's team selection for the final had to be uh, approved by the uh, the whole board, and he, he had to present it to a board meeting, and they didn't like the lineup at all. Uh, there was no Jackie Milburn in it, um, and oh, Stan Seymour in particular uh, was livid, and and uh, the team was changed with more Jackie coming into the side. And of course, what happened? Milburn hit the headlines as the game started against Manchester City at Wembley. Uh, he scored after only 45 seconds from a corner, and United went on to win 3-1 with uh, Jimmy Schooler dominant in midfield. Uh, One player was an unsung hero in United's three FA Cup wins, um, uh, including that that victory over uh, Manchester City, and that that was Bobby Cowell. And we haven't really touched on him uh, before in any episode. Yeah, let's let's, uh, talk a little bit about Bobby. He's one of three to pick up a hat-trick of post-war FA Cup winners' medals as a Newcastle player, along with Jackie Milburn and another Bobby, Bobby Mitchell. So, yeah, tell us about Bobby Cowell, Paul. Well, he was from County Durham and uh, one of United's many wartime uh, developments. He, he was a right back, solid, uh, determined defender uh, who was quick too. He made his senior debut, uh, debut actually in, in that remarkable 13-0 victory over Newport uh, that yeah. we covered uh, two or three episodes ago. Uh, he went on to become a regular and played in every one of the 25 FA Cup games as the club lifted uh, those three trophies uh, in the 50s. Unfortunately, he was injured on a tour straight after that 1955 win uh, when they went to Germany. An injury ended his career. Um, He had ligament damage and uh, he had to retire, albeit he had clocked up 409 appearances. Um, So um, he never scored a goal, but it was a a great career for for Bobby Cowell. And he he, he remained on Tyneside for the rest of his life, a Newcastle United supporter. Mm. Alan, any memories of Bobby Cole? After he finished playing, actually, I, I took my son to a match and Bobby Cole was in the car park with his um, with his wife. And I told David, my son, said, that's Bobby Cole, go and get his autograph. So David went across, can you No problem, sign it. Hey, our son, best She's a nice guy, nice guy, a nice guy. His wife said, come on, Bobby, come on, Bobby. You want to keep <laughs> chatting, though. 
Ah, good man, good man. And Alan, staying with you, what about your memories of the 55 final itself? I assume you were watching that one on TV in the house? Yes, I did. Um, it was the first cup final I ever saw on TV. Because in those days, 1955, domestic TVs were few and far between on Tyneside. But my aunt and uncle, who lived in the posh end of Walker, they had one. So we all trooped down there to, to, watch the, to watch the cup final. I remember sitting on the floor for the, of the living room waiting for the kickoff when my dad, my uncle and a group of their friends came in from the pub with piles of bottles of beer and they went straight to, the, to watch the match. The pub probably didn't have a TV or closed at three o'clock, but they came into the house and they all went to the kitchen to open the bottles of beer and missed the kickoff. And the castle scores, as Paul said, after 45 seconds, yeah, I went, yeah. And they never heard me at all. They were so raucous. They came in and in those days, there was no action replays. And the teams mm -hmm. were lining up to kick off. And I said, um, they said, um, oh, we're just in time for, for, for the kickoff. I said, no, Newcastle's winning 1-0. Nah, they're not. Who's going? <laughs> I said, Jackie Milburn with the header. Don't talk rubbish, Jackie. Can I hear the ball? And they didn't read it for about two or three minutes of the game where the commentator said Newcastle were winning 1-0. <laughs> Amazing. Of course, no graphics on the screen either to do no, nothing, 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 nothing. It may have been Kenneth Woodson, who it may not have been. It was a long, long time ago. But mm -hmm. another thing Paul mentioned there, you got it right, well done, Paul. You referred to Jimmy Schooler. The commentator kept calling him Scowler for some reason. I don't know why, but you couldn't, you can't talk proper. That's the trouble, the suddenness. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, um, it looks like the manager, Dougie Livingston, he didn't last a year. Despite overseeing the, the successful run to glory, he was gone by the end of 1955. Yes, he didn't last long after that Wembley success. Uh, he moved on uh, during that 55-56 season and, and the Magpies were again left without a boss uh, for another uh, period. Uh, the seasons after that Cup success were very mixed though. Uh, however, several terrific games took place um, in the three really come to mind and, and are really very special uh, games in, in the post-war history of Newcastle. Uh, we played Sunderland in 55-56 uh, over the Christmas period. Uh, we won 6-1 at Roker Park um, and then the day after won again 3-1 at Gallagher. And it doesn't get much better than that, really. Um, and in the FA Cup, we still could create the magic. Um, and two of the very best games ever played in, in Newcastle's history took place. In 55-56, uh, we played Fulham at Craven Cottage. Uh, we were actually 3-0 up, then uh, found ourselves 4-3 behind, uh, and then we went on to win 5-4. So that wow. was one terrific game. Uh, and remarkably, and it, it is a remarkable fact, that the following season, that was even matched and probably better when we played Manchester City at Main Road. We were 3-0 down, then got back to 3-3, then found ourselves 4-3 behind, uh, and then we had extra time and won 5-4. Uh, <laughs> now, you can't get an FA Cup tie or, or two FA Cup ties, indeed, uh, better than those two, really. Uh, so it was still quite a remarkable time in those latter years of the 1950s. Yeah, sounds very, very entertaining. And Alan, you literally wrote the book on Tyneweir football derbies, How Are the Lads? <laughs> the Definitive History of, of Tyneweir Football Derbies. We've got to ask you about the 6-1 win at Roker Park and the 3-1 win at St James's Park a day later. I mean, that's got to be the greatest 48 hours a Newcastle fan has ever seen. It probably was. It probably was. I may have been at both games. The truth is, I can't really remember. My dad, who would have taken me, said he thought that I was. But I do remember suddenly getting hammered by Newcastle. 
Um, but it could have been a year later, because a year later, Newcastle had beaten 6-2 at St James's Park again. So that happened six past them successive years. Um, so I've got to say something. I, I, I thought the time sort of absolute rubbish to get hammered by Newcastle. But I've got to say something in their favour. At the time, I was more impressed with their shirts than ours. They mm. played in Technicolor. We played in black and white. You can't take that away from them. Okay. <laughs> but going back to the 6-1 game at Roker, uh, many fans would probably know that Newcastle's goals were scored by Jackie Milburn, Dick Keeble and Bill Curry with two apiece. Few fans will recall that Newcastle were carrying a passenger for, for the whole of the second half because Bobby Mitchell sustained an ankle injury just before half-time and there were no subs in those days, so he had to play on. If Newcastle had a full-strength team for the whole game, there was a very good chance that they could avenge the 9-1 massacre of 1908, and I wish they had. <laughs> wow. Could have done the 13-0 that, we, that, that they did against yeah. Newport. I'm not greedy, come on, come on. <laughs> son of law's a Southern fan. No, no, you wouldn't have that. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Paul, <laughs> who were some of the the heroes of this era then in terms of Newcastle United players? Yeah, well, after the 55 Cup victory, the, the side started to change and the trio of footballers became crowd favourites. Uh, Len White, uh, who had been at the club for a while, uh, took over the number nine shirt, as I said before, uh, and uh, was an instant hit. Uh, Ivor Allchurch, one of the best midfielders around, cost a record club fee of 28,000, and he uh, came to Tyneside. And then there was George Easton, a youngster who developed quickly and was tipped for England honours, only to controversially fall out with the club uh, when he uh, ran into dispute over over his contract, and, and indeed he took the club and all the FA and Football League rules to the High Court and actually won. Um, there was another young player uh, too, uh, a fullback called Dick Keith, who came from Northern Ireland, uh, and he was to become a solid defender and a, and a favourite with the crowd. Alan, uh, I'm sure you watched all those players. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, Archer, Wrightmeeson, the Holy Trinity of my, of, of my age, they're absolutely magnificent. On a par with Keegan's entertainers of the late mm. 90s, they really, really were good. A joy to behold, an absolute delight. And I'm getting quite emotionally even thinking about them. They were, they were really, really good. Sadly, as, as Paul said, um, the, it all went pear-shaped towards the end when George took Newcastle to court and fell out of the club. We're still in the relegation year of 60-61. Dave Mackay, Nacklin White, um, at, at White Hart Lane. So, uh, Spurs had won the double that year, the league, the league and the cup. But we beat them at White Hart Lane on the day that Len, Len got injured. There were eight games to go. He never played in any of after that. Of the next six, they were just hovering above relegation when he was injured. Of the next six, they picked up two points and were relegated. And that was probably the worst thing that could have happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the Old Church White Eastern, magnificent. I bet, I bet. Paul, the, the summer of 1957 was when Jackie Milburn's association with the club as a player ended. I was wondering if you could explain the circumstances of, of the departure. Yeah, well, that was in June. Uh, he, he left Tyneside after almost 500 appearances, uh, scoring 238 goals, uh, including his wartime record. Uh, he'd been there 15 years, so that would be a long, long time. Uh, he was age 33. Uh, Newcastle decided uh, it was time to replace him at that point. Uh, and he, he actually uh, was wanting to move into coaching. He, he was offered a player coach job uh, at Linfield in Northern Ireland. And he 
you, you, it was a very lucrative deal for Jackie at that time because uh, Linfield offered far more money than uh, the maximum wages in, in England. And uh, as, as I said, he wanted to move into coaching. Uh, it was a bit strange that Newcastle didn't offer him a deal to become one of their coaches or trainers, as they were called back then. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, he, he took a five-year appointment uh, with Linfield and, and moved on. The mood was disappointing, of course. Uh, Jackie was sad that he was leaving after such a great period. So were the fans. But I think everybody knew his days were numbered. You know, Len White had taken over the number nine shirt. And even before that, Vic Keeble had taken the centre-forward role as well. Um, so Jackie was uh, starting to become a bit part player in the forward line. And, of course, at 33 years of age, you know, um, every great player has uh, has to come to an end. Yeah, the end of an era. Bobby Mitchell remained at the club, and we've covered Jackie and we've covered Bobby Cowell. So for balance, Paul, I was wondering if you could tell us about the third member of the trio who collected a hat-trick of FA Cup winners' medals for Newcastle in the 50s. Yeah, well, Bobby Mitchell was was a huge favourite on Tyneside, uh, you know, standing alongside Jackie Milburn. He cost United a big fee back in February 1949, £17,000 uh, from the old Third Lanark Club uh, uh, in Glasgow. He was a tall, tricky, ball-playing winger who was capped by Scotland. Uh, and for all of 13 seasons, Mitchell operated down the left touchline and, and later in his career in a midfield role. And he could be a match winner, without doubt. He was able to go past defenders in tight positions and deliver a telling cross. Or in many instances, uh, he, he scored uh, hit goals himself. Um, and indeed, he scored uh, over 100 from the wing positions for Newcastle United. And that's uh, quite remarkable. Uh, and of course, he was nicknamed Bobby Dazzler. And he, uh, without doubt, and I wish I'd seen Bobby Mitchell play, uh, I did catch him in some retirement-type games in the 60s, but uh, in his prime, he must have been quite brilliant. You know, 410 appearances and 113 goals. Yeah, Alan, Bobby Mitchell, any memories? Yeah, truly great player. I saw him play quite a few games for Berwick. He went to Berwick from Newcastle for two seasons. Then he took over at Gated as player-manager. And Gates had been kicked out of the league then, they were in the North Regional League, but attracting crowds of 4,000 in the North mm. Regional League, playing reserve sides. And, uh, certainly, and they won the league in 1965, his last full season. And I, I saw them play more often than I saw Newcastle. Mitch was something wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Mm. But the big hero of all time to me is Jackie Milburn. Far mm. too often, I think you have your legend, Sir Peter Clay. Jackie didn't. Jackie was superb as a man, yes. just as a footballer. Yeah. Yeah, we've enjoyed talking about him on this podcast and uh, yeah. I'm sure we're, we're jealous if you haven't seen him play. You've got to be old to do that, though. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, how did things look at the club then as this you know, hugely successful era, the 1950s, came to an end? Well, by season 1958-59, uh, United's directors once again decided uh, that they had to make a change uh, and they had to start to to have a new approach. Uh, they appointed a manager to lead a modernisation programme at St James's Park. Uh, Mitten was a noted, Charlie Mitten arrived as a manager, uh, an ex-Manchester United player, uh, and he was uh, a noted young up-and-coming uh, manager with up-to-date ideas, uh, having played abroad in South America. And his time in charge saw uh, goals uh, galore, uh, really. Uh, they, they were the order of the day under Mitten. 
Uh, unfortunately, it was at both ends. United scored plenty, but conceded far too many as well. And in 1960-61, uh, they were relegated with the defence uh, conceding 109 goals. Len White uh, continued scoring uh, in the seasons up to the 60s uh, and that relegation campaign, as, as uh, Alan noted, uh, he, he, his totals in four seasons were 25 goals, another 25, 29 and 29. So, uh, you know, he, he was quite prolific. And uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, at the end of 1960-61, uh, we went down back to, to, to the second tier. And it was uh, we had to start all over again. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll cover the relegation in a bit of detail in next week's episode. But let's finish positively. Let's let's talk about Len White. Uh, Paul, you first. Can, what can you tell us about Len? Well, you know, uh, he was a Yorkshire miner, um, full of hard graft. Uh, uh, he was still working as a miner when he arrived at Newcastle from Rotherham in February 1953. Uh, he was purchased as a versatile uh, player who could play in most positions across across the forward line. He was a stocky uh, forward who um, found a place uh, in the side in the 1955 FA Cup final and, and never really looked back after that. Um, when Milburn and Keeble departed, uh, Len took over the number nine shirt, as we've said, and was an instant success. Uh, he was remembered for terrific ability to sort of weave in and out of uh, challenges and then hit the ball with a power pack shot. And you know his record is great as well, 270 games and 153 goals. And there's not many strikers in Newcastle's history mm. can match that sort of goal ratio. Mm, amazing, amazing. How was he never cut for England? It's ridiculous. Yeah, well, that was a controversial uh, mm. uh, fact on Tyneside in those late uh, 19... Uh, 50s seasons. Uh, he did play for the Football League, um, and I think from memory he did score maybe a hat trick in 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 on Merseyside, but never got the call up uh, to the full side. Yeah. Mm. Legends like Jackie Milburn and uh, Colin Veach didn't really receive enough caps, and, and a, a, num a number of players yeah. didn't get capped at all. So I think probably fell into that category. We, we can suspect. Alan, one of the oh. one of the big travesties of Len was he wasn't given the formal testimonial by Newcastle. Really? It was a disgrace. I mean, he had a testimonial, but it wasn't at St. James's Park. It was at Hillheads, Whitley Bay's ground. It was oh. your um, former colleague, John Gibson, who, who organised the whole thing. A good crowd turned up, but it should have been at St. James's Park. There's no doubt about that. Wow, interesting. And, and I assume, Len, was another player you enjoyed watching? Oh, yeah. Him? I saw him play one more game after his testimonial. Because um, he played the testimony at, at Hillheads, he turned out for um, a testimony for Jackie Bell, who Paul remember was a, um, a sad person who, who lost his leg and died. Um, he was very poor health when early nineties, when um, he had a testimonial for him at Evenwood Town Football Club, and, and Len turned out as did Gordon Hughes, um, the old men by then. They played for the first twenty minutes for the Northern Select Select side against the Newcastle United eleven, and um, they're still fit of the turnout. I last saw him about three or four years later. Um, my work took me around the north of England, and I based, or I live in Newcastle, I based in Leeds, and Newcastle Reserves were playing Huddersfield one night. And I said, I'll go stay down there, and I'll go and see Newcastle Reserves play. And I went out to Huddersfield, got there well before they kick off. I was wandering around the deserted streets around Leeds Road ground, and this guy's walking towards me. 
And I thought it was one of the, the people who I, I met in business down there. As I walked past him, I was looking at him, trying to make eye contact, just went straight by. I got about 50 yards up the road and I realised it was Len White. I thought, mm. I've got a pen, pen and pencil, I get his autograph. I didn't have one. So I let him go and I said, I'll come back next year, I get a proper photograph and ask him to autograph and have a bit of a chat. He died that summer. So I never oh. got to see him, you know, which it's, it's, it's really sad. But I think the summing up Len White, I can't do it any better than quoting Paul here. Close your ears, Paul, I'm going to compliment you here. Okay. Um, in his ultimate who's who, and I've got to read this, Paul says that Len White was worshipped almost as much as Ward Jackie had been in the years before and Shearer afterwards. Spot on, Paul. Yes, great. And a great plug for the, the ultimate who's who, which is a essential read for all book. Newcastle United yeah. fans. And yeah. I've been using it a lot for to prepare for this podcast and for, for bits and pieces at work. So, yeah, good one. Good. Anything well, else? You'll need to get uh, the update supplement, which will be out uh, at the end of this season. Advert, advert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's it's... lots of new information, uh, and obviously we've got ten years, nearly ten years of new players to add in. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Put your order in now. <laughs> we, wel- we welcome that. We welcome that reading about Newcastle United history. Alan, before we go, anything to add about this era? Yeah, the 50s? No, I've really enjoyed it. Good thinking all over my youth. It's wonderful. Um, I just wish, wish I could live him again. I just would <laughs> wish we'd won more. It would have been nice, yeah. But the fifties wasn't bad to, to the club, was it? It was a fantastic it year. Say, say, watching watching all church white Eastern play together, that never goes away from you. No, I bet, I bet. So there we go. Newcastle um, have just won their sixth FA Cup. Um, they haven't touched a domestic trophy since. 1955, but remarkably, the club are still seventh on the all-time list of FA Cup winners behind yes. Arsenal, Man United, Chelsea, Tottenham, Liverpool, and Aston Villa. So um, that's that's still something. Next week for episode 17, we're going to be covering 1961 to 67, the return of Joe Harvey, a promotion, and the first taste of European football. And we're going to be joined by TV and theatre writer Michael Chaplin who began his campaign as Newcastle fan, as, a, as a Newcastle fan during this era. And he's also got a, a brand new book out covering his 60 years supporting Newcastle. So don't miss that episode. Until then, if you have any um, history observations, listener, um, facts, stats, memorabilia, anything, you know where we are. You can email us, the EIBW podcast at reachplc.com. Or you can tweet me at Ketchell on Twitter too with any feedback on the series so far. Are you enjoying Chronicled? We do hope so. If, if you are, a, ni- a nice five-star review on iTunes would be fantastic if you've got time. And uh, do subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on. Follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United channels on social media. We're at Chronicle NUFC on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And lastly, stay up to date with Everything Black and White by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletters. They're curated by me. They're free. And I send a morning news roundup, an evening news roundup and breaking news as and when it happens directly to your inbox. The link to sign up for our newsletter is in the show notes. You can click that, scroll down to Sport, Newcastle United Updates, tick the box, and you'll be signed up. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United, with me, Matt Ketchell, Paul Joannou, and Alan Candlish. <laughs>